everyone is sort of looking for an explanation of how the world actually works and how it has sort of ordered it together. Uh, many people, I think, would agree with this statement that everything happens for a reason. Now, there is quite a variety of uh, sort of explanations behind that or what that actually looked like, what that actually looks like. Um, and there's a few different kind of camps that might fall underneath that idea of everything happens for a reason. Uh, the first is very simply cause and effect. If you're sort of more of a scientific person, you might believe in that just because there's causes and effects. And that's just sort of one, one cause leads to another effect. Uh, then there's kind of the idea of karma that has sort of permeated a lot of different things and um, sort of influences a lot of different uh, people's beliefs and views about things, sort of the idea that's closely related to cause and effect. But it also includes the nature, the quality of sort of future lives of other rebirths after this life. And then if you're from more of a, a Christian perspective would be the idea of providence, that, that God's unseen hand is working behind the scenes for some reason, for, for some purpose. There's something happening for a reason. Um, some people, though, underneath this banner of everything happens for a reason, would also put the idea of luck underneath that, that luck is some sort of a reason of why things happen. It, a little bit seems random at times, but luck might be one of the reasons that things happen. And luck has really become a significant part of uh, our American culture, but luck is, almost, is also a significant part Sorry, uh, fly, just went right in my ear, um, <laughs> as luck would have it. Anyhow, luck is, is also becoming a significant part of, sort of, it's, it has been, I should say, a significant part of culture around the world. It's sort of the way that people look at the world. And luck is basically the idea that there's this, this timing, this, this, this opportunity sort of sinking together at this moment where timing and opportunity, they sort of meet up randomly. There, there doesn't seem to be a purpose, but it just sort of randomly happens. And sometimes it's a good opportunity with good timing. Other times, it's bad opportunities at a bad time. And um, it's, that's just what sort of luck is, that they just sort of happen randomly. Those timing and those opportunities, they just sort of happen randomly. And I would suggest with all of these views, with all these different views of purpose, whether it's luck or providence or karma or cause and effect, all of those views in some way have a little bit of a reflection of God on our hearts. It's sort of the fingerprint of God on us that we're all looking for an explanation for how the world is ordered and put together. We, we want to know if, if their success was something about their circumstances or if it was just sort of random. We, we want to know if our lack of success is just because we have bad luck or maybe we have success because we have good luck, whatever the case might be. We want to know if the future is just sort of random events that just sort of come together or if it's possible that there might be more of a purpose to life and a meaning behind life. We want to know if this was just a fluke or just a happenstance, or did we contribute to what was happening in the world and in our lives? Are opportunities and timing orchestrated by someone, or are they just completely random? Well, we're continuing this series called Divine Coincidence, which I hope can help answer some of those questions that we just sort of were talking about. Um, but the title might seem like a little bit of an oxymoron because uh, coincidence means, the definition that we've been using is uh, a remarkable set of events or circumstances happening or existing at the same time without apparent orchestration. And that last part is kind of the key, without apparent orchestration. And that in the moment, we might not see how things could potentially work together. There, there seems to be no apparent orchestration of these events or these circumstances or maybe the timing of those things. Um, they just sort of, sort of seem random. But then over time, like many of us have experienced, over time or after another series of events, we start to see that maybe there is some sort of orchestration happening that we didn't initially see. 
Uh, it's almost as if God, or someone at least, was orchestrating those events or circumstances. So in this series, we're focusing on the book of Esther as one of the main examples of this idea of divine coincidence, um, which also might seem a little bit strange if you know anything about the book of Esther, because there's actually no mention of God throughout the whole book of Esther. It's one of the books that doesn't, it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God by name. So which leads to several questions. One being, why is God not mentioned? And number two, well, where is God when God's not being mentioned or talked about? And we said last week that one of the reasons that the author might have not mentioned the name of God is so that the audience can understand and remember that God is at work even when we can't see him, even when we don't see him. Because even though God is not mentioned by name, I would suggest to you he's at work and he's present through every chapter, through every verse of this book. And the Bible Project, I think, invites us into something that's pretty powerful. The Bible Project describes Esther as an invitation to look for God's activity, which is what we've been sort of trying to do through this. And so the story of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire a long time ago, uh, specifically in the capital city of Susa. And this is a historical, this isn't like some sort of fiction or, you know, made up story, I should say. Uh, it's in modern day Iran near the southern border with Iraq. And it's basically the Persian Empire that stretches all the way from India to Ethiopia, Asia Minor, all that in there. And the story of Esther starts with the king of the Persian Empire, Xerxes. Again, Xerxes is a historical figure. You can look him up, and these, these, a lot of these things you can, you can verify with outside sources. Um, but basically, King Xerxes banishes his queen and, and kicks her out of the, the role of being queen. And so then we're introduced to two other characters, two other main characters, two, two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther. And King Xerxes decides to find his next queen through sort of a beauty contest. And Esther is the one who's chosen as his new queen. She enters it and she wins. And along the way, on top of that, Mordecai actually saves the king's life. So these are influential characters in the story of Xerxes, but also in the story that we're reading about uh, that we're going to continue on today. And so through these strange events and sometimes painful events for these characters, it seems that there's more than just coincidence of these things happening, that maybe they are divine coincidences with, with God sort of orchestrating the events behind the scenes. And so we said that when God seems absent, his invisible hand is still at work. And then last week we met the villain. Last week was the where we introduced this, uh, everybody to the villain, Haman. He's this guy that's looked really bad. Uh, we're going to see even worse from him today. But he basically gets King Xerxes to sign a law saying that they can kill all the Jews, that they can just kill all the Jews and get rid of them. Well, obviously this troubles all the Jews, right? They're living in this area and specifically troubles Mordecai, who is a Jew, and he knows the situation uh, very well. And then when Esther finds out, she too is very troubled by this, obviously, because she is a Jew as well. And so Mordecai presents Esther with an opportunity, an opportunity to fix this problem to prevent the Jews from being killed. And he introduces the idea that this could be the time, Esther. He says this, who knows if perhaps you were made for just such a time as this. And so we asked ourselves, what if God made me for just such a time and just such an opportunity as right now, as this? And if God placed me where I am, if we believe that, if God actually placed me where I am, for a reason, what is that reason? What is he calling me to do in this situation? And we said that when such a time comes, God wants to use us for a bigger purpose. Now, I want to expand on that a little bit. God wants to use us for a bigger purpose than just us. And that's what we can sort of say when we say the bigger purpose. It's more than just we can sort of even imagine or even understand in this life. God wants to use us for a bigger purpose than we than just us and ourselves, and more than just us sort of avoiding discomfort, of, of avoiding suffering. 
And so Mordecai invites Esther into this opportunity to say, this is something bigger than just you. That Mordecai says to her cousin Esther, you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this, that God's whole plan was not just about making you pretty, though that seems to be a part of it. And God's whole plan is not just about you being chosen uh, for this little moment to become queen, and that's it. But there's a, a reason that you've been chosen as queen. And the problem for Esther and the problem for us is that at times when there's opportunities, there's also opportunities with huge risks. Like it's one thing to just have an opportunity that's sort of neutral and it doesn't involve a lot of risk. It's not that bad. It seems to be just sort of neutral. But there's also opportunities that come with bad timing too, right? Like the opportunity comes and it just doesn't seem like it's good timing. It doesn't seem like the things are lining up in the right sequence of events or it just doesn't seem like it's a good season of your life, whatever the timing piece might be. And both of those seem to be the case for Esther in this story, that the opportunity seems to be a bad opportunity and the timing seems to be a bad timing because of what uh, is going on in the story behind the scenes. However, we see that Esther sort of thinks for a moment. She takes this time to, to fast and pray for three days. That's where we sort of left the story off. She fasts and prays for three days, and then she decides to talk to the king and tell him about Haman's plan to destroy all the Jews, which is, again, where we're going to pick up the story today. So we're going to start reading in Esther chapter 5. If you want to open up your Bibles, you can do that. You can also go to the Bible app and find uh, the information there, um, and we'll also have it on the screen as well. Um, so right before this, again, Mordecai challenges Esther. Here's the opportunity. Here's the timing. This is a risky step, but here's what I want you to do to go to the king and to talk to the king and ask him for help. Now, Esther decides again to fast and pray, which I don't want to skip past too fastly because it would be easy for us to rush past that. But this is something very significant. Verse, verse one of chapter five. On the third day of the fast, on the third day of the fast, that it's very possible that the only reason that the rest of the story of Esther happens, and some amazing things happen, and as we're going to talk about today, the only, reason it's, the only reason the rest of the story happens is because Esther took the time to seek God's insight through fasting. Now you might say, well, but God's not even mentioned in this story, and he's not. But the idea of fasting comes with this innate quality that by definition it's abstaining from something, usually food, but abstaining from something to discern God's voice and his direction for a specific time and purpose. And so it comes prepackaged, the idea that Esther fasts, the idea that she's coming to look for God's direction. She's seeking God's direction in his voice in this moment. That basically fasting and praying are ways to sort of raise our spiritual antenna to sort of gather the, 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 the signal and voice of God in amongst all the noise of life, right? There's so much noise. It's so easy to sometimes miss God's voice and direction of what he wants us to do and what he wants to say to us. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans says this, one reason we miss God's coincidences is that we do not have a raised spiritual antenna so we don't pick up spiritual signals. That many times we need to sort of raise our spiritual antennas and one of the ways to do that is through fasting and praying to sort of understand the timing, to understand exactly what God wants us to do, the specific moment he wants us to be involved in. And as we'll see, likely because Esther fasted, she was able to sort of somehow know God's timing, whether it was through fear, as we're going to see as a possibility, or maybe she just could, again, sense what she should do as far as timing. Timing is going to play an important part in this story. Okay, continue on. Verse 1. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the golden scepter to her. So after, again, Esther seeks out God's direction and guidance, she took this step. And now this is a very risky step that she took because remember, it's already, there's already sort of been a precedent that if you don't follow what the king says and come when the king says, 
Uh, Queen Vashti was just discarded because she didn't come when the queen or when the king says. And so in this moment, we see sort of the opposite, that she comes before the king when the king hasn't requested her to come. And so there's obviously this precedent in, in Esther's mind knowing that this is what happened to Queen Vashti. She came and she didn't follow the protocols. And so now Esther's not really following the protocols and coming when she shouldn't come or she hasn't been requested. And this is sort of something that the historians say that this was a thing in Persia. This was just a thing that you, you didn't come before the king unless you were requested. Now, in this case, the king holds out his golden scepter to sort of say, it's okay for you to come. It's, you're welcome to come. But she didn't know that when she took the step, right? This is a very risky step for Esther, Esther to take. And this risky step leads to more steps after this. Now, obviously, we should not just take every risky step. That doesn't make sense. But there are moments when we need to understand that we can't also avoid every risky step. Because many times the stories of, of great acts of faith start with somebody taking a step of faith with the idea that God will come behind them and take a step in their direction or he will, they will have faith that God will act after them. Continue on verse 3. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Now, this might not be literal. Um, this might be sort of metaphorical to say, you're, again, you're welcome to talk to me. You're welcome to bring your request to me. But I'd never thought of this before, that if this is a, a literal thing that the king's saying that he would give even up half of his kingdom, this is another moment and a chance that Esther could have taken to sort of take the easy way out and just sort of take more for herself. She could have enriched herself and she could have avoided doing the scary thing of sort of confronting the king with this problem. She could have taken the easy and the selfish way out uh, to sort of change her request and just sort of take up the king's offer that, oh yeah, that's really what I wanted, king, and just sort of move on with her life. But this is a sort of another reminder that she is not only concerned with herself and she doesn't take the easy way out. She's, she's ready to take a risky step and many other risky steps after this and telling the king what's going on. Continue on verse four. And Esther replied, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for the king. Verse five, the king turned to his attendant and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And as we're going to see through the rest of the story, and as many of us know from our perspective and our own experience, we see this. Timing is so important, right? Timing is so, so important. And God's timing is even more important. And the sequence of events that comes next is so, so critical that that's sort of why we focus on this, this section of the book of Esther today. And it's so important to the outcome of the story that we're going to read about, but it's also so important to the whole story of Esther as well. Continue on, verse 6. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Now tell me what you really want. What is your request? So initially the king said, What is your request? Uh, Esther says, Well, I'm going to go tell you at the banquet. And so now he says again, What is your request, Esther? I'll give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Verse 7. Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for you then. Then I will explain what this is all about. Basically, she got to the point where my request is that you would come to another banquet the next day, right? Like she almost got to the request, but then it seems like she sort of just changed it and went to uh, moving it to the next day. Now, this is sort of a hinge point, an important point. We don't know exactly why Esther doesn't just give her request, because as we're going to see the next banquet, she actually does give her request. So why didn't she give it at the first banquet? Well, we're not exactly sure. It could have been out of fear because she sort of got 
uh, chicken in the moment. She chickened out and she didn't just go ahead and ask it because she was afraid of what would happen. Uh, maybe she was sort of seeing the situation and realizing that the timing was not right. Uh, maybe God had already prompted her, you're going to do two banquets. Whatever the case is, we don't really need to know the exact reason that Esther doesn't do this. But what I think we can agree on is that when we see this pause, when we see a delay, when we have fear, God can still use any of those things in his plan and his purpose. So again, we don't necessarily know why. We're not exactly sure. But there seems to be an indication in the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 6, that night. So again, this banquet happens in the evening, and that night after the banquet, several things happen. And what happens that night is likely why Esther didn't make her request the first time in the first banquet. Now, she might not have known all that was going to happen, but that's probably sort of tied into God's plan of how he worked all this timing out. That God's providence is closely connected to timing, even if that timing may not be our timing or our preferred timing, it likely will include years at times, months, and it will likely be different than our timing. But if Esther would have made her request at the first banquet at that moment, then the rest of what happens would not have happened, that these seemingly uh, random, ordinary, unconnected events would not have come together to lead to an ironic reversal that we're going to see at the end of the story today. So Haman walks by Mordecai. After he leaves the banquet, he walks by Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai is not standing to honor Haman. When he walks by him, he doesn't stand to honor Haman. And this just really ticks off Haman. He sees that and he's just so more... He's already been mad at Haman before, but now he's really mad at Haman because he's not giving him the honor that he thinks he deserves. So Haman does what most good men do when they're upset. He goes and talks to his wife. <laughs> and he goes and talks to his wife and his wife and his friends and he discusses this. And his wife gives him some advice that, you know, maybe not so good. And, you know, Haman's obviously not in a great mindset at this point. But basically his wife says, you don't have to take that from Mordecai. Why don't you just erect this huge sharpened pole and just impale Mordecai on it tomorrow? Well, Haman thinks that's a good idea. Again, he's very mad. We've all been there. We're very mad. We just like go with this terrible idea and he goes with it. And, um, and again, it seems like in this moment, things could not get any worse for Mordecai. And really, things could not get any worse for the Jews in this moment. But there's also something happening that night. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. Basically, go get the book that's the boringest book. Go bring it to me so I'll fall asleep while you're reading it to me, okay? That's what you need to do. And verse 2, in those records, though, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot. This is sort of looking back to something that happened before. The plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And Mordecai discovered that, and he helped save the king. Verse 3, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. So at the same time that Mordecai, or sorry, Haman is all upset and talking to his wife and having his discussions about building this sharpening pole, the sharpened pole, and impaling Mordecai on it, at the same time, the king can't sleep. And so the king asks for this book to be read, and the exact book is brought to him and turned to the exact page of the, the story and the recount of, of, of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king, again, realizes that he hasn't done anything to reward the guy who saved his life. So, verse 4, as it happened, again, sort of that other timing word, this coincidence thing happening, as it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king 
to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. Again, just by coincidence, it doesn't seem like anything's arranged, maybe, but, you know, as we'll see, maybe there is. Uh, Haman comes to talk to the king about killing Mordecai, the very person that the king is thinking about rewarding because of what he's done previously. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? So the king asks Haman, who just came in, what should I do to the man, or what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? We get some insight into Haman's thoughts. Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? That Haman is focused on himself, right? And we contrast that in the story very easily with Esther, who is focused on her people. Now, she's obviously very aware of how these things could impact her, but her focus is on her people of trying to save her people. And in this moment and, and through this story, we see that Haman is going to learn pretty much a lot of terrible life lessons. He's just going to learn quite a few terrible lessons. Number one, it can be destructive to be the king of your own life. That when we try to sort of be the king of our own life, it can lead to some disaster and destruction in our life. That, that God has sort of a terrible surprise for Haman coming up. That as, as God sort of does sometimes with us, when we start to think that we can be the king of our own lives, there's room for only one king in our lives. And in this moment, specifically, Haman is not the king actually in the world, but he's also not very good king of his own life. He's ordering things that are end up going to be reversed on him. And, and the second terrible lesson that Haman learns is that while we make plans, God's invisible hand guides us. That while we are making plans and doing things and organizing, orchestrating things ourselves, all the while God is still behind the scenes his invisible hand is guiding us and leading us to where he really wants us to go, even though we make our own plans. That Haman thinks that the king is wanting to honor Haman, and so Haman gives all these suggestions of what the king should do to sort of honor him and to, and to, to give glory to him, to make him number two in the kingdom, in fact. But God's plan was for Mordecai to be honored, for Mordecai to become number two in the kingdom, and to be elevated to this position of power. And so the king actually likes Haman's idea of what he should do to somebody that, that has saved his life, and he tells him to go get Mordecai. So Haman is supposed to go get Mordecai and lead him on his own horse around the city, the town center of the city, and basically proclaiming uh, Mordecai's glory and honor and encouraging the people to honor and glorify Mordecai. That Haman ends up giving Mordecai the very thing that Haman wants in his life. And not only that, Haman is leading the person in the position that he wants to be in in that moment. And yet, again, we sort of look back to Esther's delay, her not telling the first story, not telling the, uh, not telling the first banquet, I should say. She, she sort of has, somehow she has this ability, or, or God sort of pauses her or delays her from telling the story at the right time to allow all of these things to happen in this moment. Continue on verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai, after Mordecai was led around through the city and being honored and glorified, after Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated, that basically Haman's depressed. <laughs> he realizes things are not going the way he wanted at all. In fact, some of these things are starting to reverse already, and it's just going to keep getting worse for him. Verse 13, when Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. In verse 14, while, there's this key timing word again. Another, we see these timing words throughout this, while. 
While Haman's wife and friends were telling him, yeah, things aren't looking too good. While that's happening, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. The second banquet that Esther said, come to the second banquet. And so the second banquet, again, it happens because, again, for some reason, Esther's able to see or she's delayed or she's afraid. doesn't matter really. But she's, she moves on to the second banquet. Uh, again, we don't necessarily know the timing, but we're starting to see things sort of coming together. Because the timing of the second banquet happens in such a way that after Haman does this stuff and he's dejected and depressed, he doesn't have a time to flee. He doesn't have an opportunity to run away. He doesn't have an opportunity to come up with a new plan to sort of get out of these situations, that the timing just works in such a way that he's rushed off to the banquet now. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Again, sort of saying, I'm going to give you what you want. What is your request? Verse 3, Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. That remember, like up until this point, actually Esther hasn't really described that she's Jewish. <laughs> she hasn't described she's Jewish because initially her cousin Mordecai told her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish, just you know, sort of keep that secret. And so it's not been sort of told to everybody. And so maybe if she didn't tell anybody previously, she could have avoided being killed by all these people killing the Jews because she hasn't been identified as a Jew. And obviously she's the queen. So, you know, how would she get killed? And yet, either way, in this moment, she connects herself with the Jews. She says, they're my people. And, and you've said that these people are supposed to be killed. You allowed this to happen, the king. And so she connects herself in this moment with these, with these people, not knowing if the king will actually save her people or now save her. She takes a big risky step. Verse 5, who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Who would be so presumptuous to touch the king's wife, the queen? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. So again, rewind a little bit. If Esther would have taken the moment in the first banquet to, to share her request with the king, a lot of this would not have happened. Haman would not have been as mad at Mordecai as he was to where he went and built a 75-foot sharpened pole to impale Mordecai on. The king would not yet have elevated Mordecai because he wouldn't have had that moment where he couldn't sleep and he's reading about Mordecai, remembering he hadn't rewarded Mordecai yet. That the king likely would have been in a very different mood had Esther brought the request initially when, when the first banquet was going on. That a lot changed and the sort of the timing of the events, it seems that there's something orchestrating, someone orchestrating these things again. Back, back to the story. The king again obviously is upset with Haman when he learns this. Verse 7, the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden, which is kind of interesting. You know that the man who's trying to kill your wife is in the room still, but you know he's been drinking and he doesn't have good judgment apparently. He leaves the room because he's so angry, and he leaves Haman in the room with Esther. Haman, however, though, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. Verse 8, in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning 
from the palace garden. Now, there needs to be a little bit of inference. You need to sort of you know, imagine what this could look like. Basically, Haman is bowing before Queen Esther to beg for his life. And this is sort of, again, one of the ironic reversals. We're going to look at a lot of the ironic reversals next Sunday, but this is sort of the start of it again, that, that there's several of these ironic reversals, that, that this whole problem started because Haman was upset that a Jew would not bow to him. And now, in this moment, he's begging for his life and he's bowing before a Jew so that she will save his life. But obviously, the sort of the, the positions that the people are in, it doesn't seem like that's exactly what happens. The king doesn't think that's exactly what happens. Um, and so, verse, uh, continue on verse 8. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? Uh, because at this time, the, the codes of protocol, uh, no one should get within several steps of the queen, whatever your reason being. And so whether the king was actually thinking something bad was happening, that Haman was attacking or assaulting his wife, he was way too close to the queen either way. Continuing on in verse 8. And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. And the, Haman basically didn't get a chance to explain. He didn't get an opportunity to explain. It just didn't come his way. That when his face is covered, it's basically just sort of an announcement that he's guilty, that he's going to die. And then verse 9, then, again, another timing word, and these important timing words in this story. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole. Remember that? Like he set up this sharpened pole um, that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. And again, it seems like God has used Esther's delay, her fear, her plan, whatever it was to, to sort of delay this request, that now Haman had time to get this pole ready, that now, as we're going to see, is going to be used on him. And God seems to allow, basically, Haman to dig his own grave, in a sense. He digs his own grave, his own opportunity to die. That God uses timing, God uses our emotions, God uses our plans. God uses everything to accomplish his plan and his purposes. Continue on verse 9. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So, um, kind of a gruesome end of the story. We'll pick up the story next week from there. Uh, but what can we sort of take away from this story? What are the things that can sort of apply to our life? Because I want to leave you with a few questions for you to consider and a few ways that you can sort of take some of the principles from this story and maybe apply it to your life. Uh, so takeaway number one, power. And this is an important one that is not necessarily the main point, but I think it is a, an important point. No matter how much power or what position people have, there's only one God. And, and as much power as we think we might have, as much power as Xerxes seemed to think he had, as much power as Haman thought he had, he really didn't have all the power. That God seemingly was working behind the scenes to do what God was wanting to do through the story, that no authority on earth has anything unless God gives it to them. And the God who gives it can also take it away because Xerxes does not live forever and stay in power forever. And this applies to other people, but it also applies to us as well. That Esther realizes that in this moment, she has been given a level of power and in this position she's in, not merely for her own personal benefit or to enrich herself or to gain more power for herself, that she realizes this is for other people, that the power that she's been given is for the use of helping 
others. And we have been placed in positions of power. Even if you don't think you have a position of power, you do. Uh, we can talk about that personally. I can go to lunch and probably try to point out a few things. But we all have positions of power. And we have been given that position of power, not just for ourselves, not just to enrich ourselves, not just for our own personal benefit, but for the sake of other people. And ultimately, God has more power than any other person over you, more power than you. And so at least we should say, or maybe we should ask ourselves, who really has the power to control outcomes? Because when we face risky situations or risky opportunities, it's very easy to sort of think, well, they could hurt me, they could do something to me, and they maybe could in this earth, but ultimately, who has the power? Who really controls outcomes? Number one, power. Number two takeaway is risk. And we're living in a culture today um, that is very aware of risk. And uh, we have so many risky things around us. And we're not just um, that there's a lot of risky things around us. We are very aware of those risky things around us. We, we hear the news of, of tragic events that, that are so far away that we, you know, previous generations never would have heard of. We hear about all these things that potentially could harm us and could put us in danger. And so we live in this culture where we're so aware of risk, which can be good in a lot of ways. But the flip side, again, is that we sometimes can avoid good things because we're trying to avoid all risk. Sometimes we avoid things that we should do, and maybe even things that God wants us to do because it's risky. So I think it's important for us to sort of remind ourselves occasionally uh, some of us maybe need to be reminded more. Some of us maybe need to be reminded less. But we all need to sort of be reminded at least some point that we shouldn't avoid all risk, especially if God is leading us to take that risk. Uh, again, Dr. Tony Evans says this, God is at work when circumstances look uncontrollable, when life looks unpredictable, and when sin looks unstoppable. That all the risks that we might have in our life, it seems to be daunting and very risky, uh, dangerous. And yet God is still at work and we need to remember that when we think of risk. So a couple questions for you to ask yourself or several questions that ask yourself, who really has the ability to control outcomes? That was from the previous point, but that's a good one. Why is this significant when it comes to evaluating risk? If we're really concerned with who's controlling outcomes, why is that so important when it comes to risk? If we know that we can't control outcomes, why should we choose or why would we choose to not follow the only one who can actually control outcomes? Why would we follow anybody other than God? And what is at stake when you allow uncertainty and your own personal exposure to whatever risk it might be? What happens when you let that happen and outweigh what God might be saying to us to do? And then maybe a little bit more personally, is there an area of your life where following Christ seems risky? And how are you going to respond to that? And maybe some of you have that really in the forefront of your mind right now. Uh, the last takeaway is timing. And again, I sort of tried to emphasize this throughout, but timing is so, so important. It's incredibly important in our own lives. We know the sequence of things is very important and the order and all that stuff that goes along with timing. But as we've seen through the story of Esther, it's also important for God. It's also important as we follow God, that when God's timing can seem mysterious, and, and sometimes, let's be honest, it seems even random. It doesn't seem like it connects the dots at least the way that we would connect the dots, it doesn't seem like the timing's working out. God is working out details and circumstances that we can't even understand. We, we can't even see from our perspective. And so we need to sort of trust that God is working behind the scenes. His timing is different than ours, and we need to trust his timing. And so it's reasonable then to assume that God's timing would be different from our timing, right? It would seem to be reasonable that if God can see things and he's working out things that we don't even understand or know that are happening, then of course his timing is going to be different than our timing. So a couple questions. If that's true, what do you need to do to react or to act 
according to God's will and his timing. And whether that's maybe waiting, whether that, maybe that's preparing to act, maybe that's actually acting right now, what can you do to be ready for God's timing? So as we wrap up, when it comes to power, I would suggest that we need to ask God to remind us that he ultimately controls outcomes, that it's not us. It's not that person. It's not those people that control outcomes. Ultimately, that it's God. Uh, when it comes to risk, uh, I would invite you to, to sort of ask or invite God to give you courage to face the risky opportunity that he brings your way. When it comes to the timing piece, when it comes to you know, figuring out the timing, I, I think we need to ask God to help us to see the green light. Because sometimes we don't see the green light when it's time to actually go. And then also sometimes when we see the green light, we're not ready to go. And so some of us need to ask God, God, would you help me to see the green light? And then would you help me to be actually ready to go? Because our point for today is that when opportunities and timing collide, we need to follow the one who orchestrates both of those things. That God is so much bigger than we can even comprehend in the opportunities and the timing that we see. And God is orchestrating those things in ways that we can't even imagine. So we should follow him. And Esther is one of the stories that gives that as an example. Because life is so much more than just luck. It's not just coincidence. There, there's so much more purpose and meaning behind that. It's not random circumstances. They might seem like coincidences, but I would suggest to you maybe they actually are divine coincidences.